Hello and welcome to another edition of the Advent IM podcast. We're joined today by Phil Ingram. Hi Mike. By Advent IM consultant Liam. Good afternoon. And by our resident comms expert Ellie Hurst. Hello. And we thought we would get together and have a little chat given the recent news reports of American intelligence data, uh, effectively biometric data that's been gathered by the American forces in Afghanistan, where they've been gathering fingerprints and iris recognition data uh, to be able to register informants and guides, etc. So local personnel. And those devices having been left behind by the evacuating forces now being in the hands of the Taliban, who are using them to go door to door to identify people that they may want to do harm to. And I thought it just goes to show the dangerous nature of some of this data and of course the often unknowing consequences by troops on the ground of the equipment that they leave behind. So we're probably all familiar with the sight now of the Taliban riding around in American Humvees with American and British weapons and so on and so forth. But of course, it's the data side of things that we thought we'd get together and talk about. So we've long said that when it came to data and privacy, the collection of biometric data had wide ranging consequences, if not protected properly and used properly. And of course, this is a perfect example of that. But also what strikes me is the how common this is across history where data that's been collected for one purpose is then being repurposed by an occupying force or a hostile nation state or other groups um, with nefarious aims in order to cause harm to individuals. Phil, I thought it'd be useful to bring you in on this and get a couple of your thoughts on this because it's something we've talked about quite a lot in the past. Yeah, Mike, it's it's fascinating, and and, and thank you. Um, you know, the the whole issue around it. I think this there's a, a clarifying the data itself and the collection of the data. I think there might be a little bit of press spin in it, um, where they've suggested it's intelligence data. A lot of the data that's collected, biometric data that's collected in theatre, um, is collected generally um, around anyone where they're trying to confirm identity, uh, whether it uh, is individuals that are working for. Um, uh, allied forces in different countries, or whether it's people that they've they've come across voter registration, other other reasons why they're collecting data uh, around um, uh, different operations. However, uh, there is data that's collected from the intelligence side of things. If it's that that's fallen into the Taliban hands, then the individuals in there are in severe trouble. Um, and I would be really surprised if it was because that. Um, is something that the intelligence organisations uh, tend to keep very close to their chest. However, if it's also the data that is collected to register people that are coming on and off um, uh, coalition bases um, or are interacting or are suppliers to the coalition, again, that would be extremely worrying because the Taliban, uh, and I'm getting reports from the ground on, on virtually uh, a daily basis, are going door to door, hunting people, no matter what the chief of the defence staff turns around and says on BBC Radio 4 Sky News. Um, they are um, looking people out. And as soon as uh, the West finally pulls out, which the Taliban said today will be by the 31st of August, uh, the bloodbath will start and they will um, 
you know, all of the people that are on those lists are extremely uh, in, in extreme danger. And we have gifted them um, by dint of having an appallingly badly planned and executed uh, withdrawal uh, in excess of $2 billion worth of uh, conventional military equipment and all the other associated, as you said, data and everything else that there is with it. And if that stuff has been lost, what other records are there? And that's the other question we have to ask. Um, and what potential you know, allied secrets have been left lying around as well that have fallen into the Taliban hands uh, and those will be exploited by other nations. It, it is symptomatic of the complete and utter chaos that I think we have seen in the run up to um, and now the execution of what's going on to try to try and desperately get people out. Um, and I, I personally think that um, some of the senior people in our in particular military organisations, um, need to be removed from post. Uh, we need to see a few heads roll over this. And even if we're what we're talking about here isn't intelligence data in its uh, purest form, it's, we still are talking about potential identity data that can cause individuals who have served our forces over the last 20 years, in some cases, being put in the, um, the way of harm and possibly even losing their lives. And Liam, you know, we talk a lot about privacy and the need to understand the fundamental rights and freedoms of the individuals here and that clearly certainly from our western perspective under gdpr and the uk data protection act would appear to be something that's completely missing yeah i think um my my sort of first uh, reaction when i saw the story on the on the beeb last week um was just the sort of the, the lack of um thought that seems to have gone into it and uh, and as phil was saying a minute ago but just before we started uh, these contingency plans um that i you know i assume were in place um don't appear to have taken into account this kind of thing i mean this is a a, a huge amount of data that we're talking about and it's, it's very sensitive in its nature um i think um we're we're fairly blessed in, in the in the sense that we you know we we signed up to the gdpr obviously when we were a member of the EU um, and our privacy protections. We probably enjoy greater privacy protections than those in the States. Um, it's probably not high on the you know corporate risk registers and that kind of thing in, in the States. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's, it's it, basically the story struck me as, um, as negligent basically. Um, you know, if, if you're one of these um, intelligence heads or, you know, somebody who makes the decisions, um, as a security consultant myself, it would be top of my list, right? We're collecting all this biometric data. I think there was, um, I saw a figure, something like they were looking to get the records or biometric information for something like 25 million people. Um, you know, the, the majority of the people in, in Afghanistan or something like that. Um, so the top of my list is right in terms of managing risk and things like that. Um, what happens if this falls into the wrong hands? Or, you know, how do we keep this secure? What are we doing about retention? How do we dispose of it? And, you know, make sure that um, malign forces, you know, don't have access to this stuff. Um, and it appears that the imminent withdrawal has been, you know, rushed, uh, not really thought through. Um, I mean, I can't speak to that kind of thing, but in, in terms of this, you know, this uh, the biometric data that's likely to fall into the hands of the Taliban, whether they're able to, use it um you know for, the, for their purposes we don't really know yet 
Um, but the, I mean, the fact that the fact that you know that, that that's uh, potentially going to happen is really, really um, quite distressing. Um, yeah, that was my sort of initial reaction to it. And I think it shows, you know, the cultural difference there as well that we have had for a long time very good data protection legislation here in the UK, whereas data protection in the US is almost, um, well, non-existent, to be perfectly honest. Uh, the fact that they're only just starting to debate whether there is the need for a national uh, US-wide privacy legislation rather than legislation being the responsibility of the individual states to worry about just goes to show that culturally they're in a completely different place to us. And when that sort of data is then being harvested by individuals who work for forces from countries like the US, where there is that inherent culture of lack of privacy legislation, then that shows how dangerous collecting such sensitive information is on such a wide scale. Yes, I, I agree with you. But I think there's a, there's a more fundamental question that comes into this, and this could be why this has fallen into um, uh, the wrong hands, and it's who actually owns the data. Um, so what we could have here, and again, we're, we're going on a, on a press report, all the detail isn't in there, so we have to make some assumptions. But if, if, if the data was um, the voter registration data for uh, the people of Afghanistan, if it was a 25 million person database, then uh, you, the coalition forces would have assumed that the ownership of that data would lie with um, the uh, Afghan political authorities um, and Afghan civil authorities so that it would be Afghan-owned data, then our responsibility would have been to help them um, understand the data uh, security that's around it, uh, the uh, privacy regulations that are in as, as we're helping them uh, uh, build a, a country. And within that, um, you know, if things go wrong, um, a contingency plan for the destruction of the data. The same if it was um, the registration for people who are in the Afghan National Army or the Afghan police, then the assumption would be the Afghan authorities own that data, um, the Afghan army owned the data, the Afghan police owned the data or, or whatever, and therefore it wouldn't be um, owned by coalition forces. So it's their responsibility to look after it. But again, we should have been in a position to help them look after it. Uh, and again, from a mentoring perspective, whenever we get the indications that something is going to go badly wrong, um, any contingency plan should have in there something that goes uh, along the line where you make the assessment, uh, would it be uh, dangerous if this fell into the enemy's hands? Um, answer, yes, and you've got a big kill switch somewhere where you take it. Uh, what is it? What would be even worse is if this data was data that was owned by the coalition or coalition forces and that fell into um, different, ha uh, uh, different hands. I suspect it probably isn't. I suspect it's probably data that um, has been collected by equipment that we have given the Afghan authorities and everything else, but it's Afghan authority data. That doesn't um, undermine the implications of what the Taliban could do with it. And they've got the technical background and ability uh, to do all of this. You know, the Taliban aren't a bunch of, um, as Chief of Defence Staff said, country boys um, uh, with no uh, intellect whatsoever. They, they, they are full of very intelligent, very highly qualified, very experienced individuals who have run the country beforehand, um, who've been sitting planning this um, in absent uh, in absence uh, and have effectively embarrassed you know the 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 
uh, world-leading nations in what they've been able to do very quickly indeed. Uh, they're running very sophisticated information operation campaigns around what they're doing, and they're manipulating um, our political and uh, senior military thinkers, and they're manipulating them very effectively indeed. Um, we have just allowed um, an organisation that is even more dangerous than the Taliban of 20 years ago uh, back in to take control of uh, of of um, Afghanistan, and I fear the data that uh, has fallen into their hands will be exploited, and um, a, a number of the individuals uh, within there, it'll be easy for the Taliban to confirm whether those individuals have, therefore, um, uh, if they're on the databases and those databases link them to working with the coalition forces, uh, then those individuals will, will suffer. Uh, and if it's biometric data, if you're getting into some of the areas, um, you know, we, don't, we don't know what level of biometric data has, has been collected and fallen into different hands, but, but some of it um, uh, you could, could indicate um, uh, you know, uh, other, other family members uh, and links, because I know in certain circumstances DNA data is captured. So if we captured one database, is, is it, you know, what else is in there? And I think it's really important that those that were responsible answer these questions and answer these questions quickly. Picking up on what you're saying there, Phil, about the ownership, I find that a little bit of a um, a red herring, personally speaking, as a, as a data practitioner. We have, as a coalition, provided them with the equipment and the knowledge and the capability, and in many cases, the manpower, because there were coalition forces who were going out and harvesting this data initially to collect this vast amount of um, spe special category data and I think that to then say it's not our fault this has happened because we weren't the owners of the data would be entirely um, disingenuous as a coalition. And actually, regardless of who the data owner is, if we bring this back to the purpose for which we got together here today, poor data management in Afghanistan, whoever is at fault, is going to put thousands of lives at risk. Oh, 100%. Um... You know, I, and you know, I just know the way the militaries will have been thinking because they they do pigeonhole this sort of stuff, and it would be very, it would be very interesting if um, we've got some people who are dual nationals um, that are in there that are stuck that are stuck in country and fall foul of it. So if we've got someone who's a dual who's a dual national who owns a, um, a European passport as well as an Afghan passport and their data is on these databases, um, then uh, the European Data Commissioner has got every right to bring a prosecution against the owners of uh, those databases for not securing it under the General Data Protection Regulation. Um, and I think this is something that um, the data regulators really need to sit down and think hard about because um, unless we start to get these higher level actions and higher level sanctions, I think you know, the militaries will think that they are just immune from all of it. Um, and it's about time that uh, they're taught a lesson that they're not. They have to take responsibility, as you say. And I'm prepared to bet, Liam, that if we were to ask the basic data protection questions that we expect of commerce, for example, had you done a data protection impact assessment? Did you create data processing agreements? Indeed, on the ground, how many people across the coalition forces actually had any experience of knowledge in data protection? Um, I, I, I mean, I suspect there were probably some uh, experienced practitioners, you know, as part of these projects. But I think 
Um, it, I mean, you guys could speak to this better than I can, but I think with um, uh, military organisations and um, policing and things like that, I think there's a bit more of a focus on the ends rather than the means um, in the sense that, okay, we're, we, we can create this amazing biometric database and it's kind of sold to them as a, we can keep everybody secure and we'll know exactly who's who. Uh, should we do this? Yeah, great. And, uh, and it'll help us achieve this purpose. It's not really about how you do it and there's, there's not much consideration given to, um, uh, yeah, like, like I say, the means. Um, it's more about um, look at this fantastic technology that we can use to achieve our purposes really quickly and really comprehensively. Um, it's, uh, Where have we heard that before? Uh, yeah, exactly. It, it, it does seem to be a bit of a yeah, like a, a common thread. Um, I, I think maybe it, it's 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 borne out by um, the the knowledge gap between um, the technical people and the decision makers. Um, I'm not sure that in all walks of life that decision makers know exactly um, what they're getting themselves into by using this kind of technology, this novel technology, and particularly with um, artificial intelligence and machine learning and that kind of thing. There's a huge um, knowledge gap between um, those that are implementing it um, and those that are developing it and selling it to these people. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I certainly don't want to generalize, but in America, um, uh, being a capitalist society, I mean, there's uh, a lot of credence given to making money. Um, if you can sell this fancy new technology to uh, 400 police forces in the States, not naming any names, um, <laughs> you know, you, you stand to make a lot of money. And, um, yeah, and, and obviously, if you're helping the police to achieve whatever goal it is or, you know, whatever purpose, um, they're going to be happy customers. So that, that kind of, that and that drives this um the adoption of this novel technology but you know in the meantime the kind of um looking after this information sort of falls by the wayside i think that really comes back to an age-old um discussion that i know certainly i've been in and around for decades now when it comes to data privacy data protection rights and freedoms balancing what is legal against what is ethical and doing the right thing rather than doing it because you can, because the technology exists to enable you to do it and not always the same thing. And often a lot of people who are looking for technical solutions don't understand that because I don't think the um, the education piece is out there and therefore you're Liam, I think you're 100% right. You, the the militaries on the ground um, will focus on what they can do and this magic new um, widget that allows them to do all these whiz-bang things and, and look at it and, and not realise you know, all of the data handling uh, and regulation that should go on behind it um, because those that understand that and I would argue there's probably very few uh, deployed operationally um, because it's 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 not seen as a priority. Um, when you're getting into some of the higher level operations that there are, um, for example some of the higher level intelligence operations and things, it's it's very interesting the standards that have to be applied um, in operational theatres are exactly the same as the standards that have to be applied in the United Kingdom. So if you want to, if you want to do um, uh, covert surveillance, you have to get the same warrants and authorizations that you would do um, in the same way that uh, you, you would if you were carrying out covert surveillance in the UK. Um, and therefore, there's an argument here, if we have to do that, 
um, and you look at health and safety legislation, the health and safety legislation has to be applied um, uh, in you know, the workshop facilities and stores facilities and various other facilities in the same way as if it was in the United Kingdom. There's no crown exemption anymore. So we should be expecting data to be handled in the same way. But I suspect, uh, in fact, I, I've, I've experienced the fact that it's not. Um, and you know, that's something that um, I think we need to get um, our militaries and um, I'd argue probably other government departments as well to wake up to the fact that um, whilst these regulations are, are, are there, you know, other regulations from UK uh, have to be applied when you're deployed uh, and therefore these regulations should do too because it's just reflecting best practice then. And, and I would say that's not, that's not just a case of when it's in an operational theatre when you're in a conflict situation, but there are many operational organisations here in the UK that work in the same way. Um, it's not something that's confined to the armed forces either, but across many, many uniformed and frontline and operational services where there is a lip service paid to data privacy and data ethics in order to achieve the aim without thinking about the implications that that has on the rights and freedoms of the individuals. Yeah, and often it's it's relatively straightforward to be able to do what you need to do with the data, but just get all the right protections in place beforehand. But but part of it is apathy. Um, people think, why should I? Um, and part of it is a lack of understanding, I think, um, because people are too focused on achieving that aim. Um, and therefore, I think there needs to be a much wider education piece that's there. But to get rid of the apathetic um, side of things, I think we do need one or two very large legal cases that go through where senior people in public organisations, whether it be military, whether it be um, you know, police forces or other forces who um, are not properly um, using data, um, where a court case very publicly deals with someone, all it needs is one or two, and then all of a sudden it will become a priority that people on the boards will look at because they see the consequences. If there's no consequences, they'll continue to ignore it. Well, there's no doubt at all that's exactly what happened within health and safety, and it took some years for that traction to to take hold. But uh, just come back to you know the the ethics necessity proportionality. It's always that rush to innovate and to adopt new technologies, and within that thought process is never anybody who seems to say just because we can, does it actually mean that we should? Yeah, well, but but it you know it's it's a it's a really simple um, sort of formula to look at it, and it, and it straight, it comes straight down to necessity. You know, do you need to do it, and then do you need to do uh, and how can you do it in a proportional way? So necessity and proportionality, and if and if you can justify that, um, then. Um, it's it's perfectly right that you carry on the activity. If you can't justify it, you then look at a way of if if it's still necessary, you then look at another way of doing it in a proportional way, and that that just usually comes up with um, a, a, a final bit of um, changing the plan around to do it. And it and it's it brings in good practice, and this is where a lot of the different organisations don't understand. They think they just see this goal that they have to achieve, and the only way to do it is this instead of uh, going through the thinking, going through the planning. Um, and 
you're, the planning is never wasted because it gets you thinking through all the different what ifs and all the different possibilities out of there. Um, and even if you never implement the plan, the fact that you've gone through the process teaches you so much about what you need to do. But part of the problem with a lot of the organisations that are out there, uh, and especially you, you look at the Ministry of Defence, it has got zero external accountability. You know, it um, feeds stuff into the press that it wants to see. And even if the press find something out uh, and jump up and down, the MOD turn around and say, yes, we'll investigate that, then do nothing about it. Because they answer to no one. They have got no organisation that provides an oversight um, to give them that um, uh, that that, ac that accountability. So they're only accountable to themselves. So it's totally up to them as to whether they want to take responsibility for it or not. And that's why I think the only way to start to actively encourage, I'll use that rather than force organisations to um, do something about it and to uh, comply with the regulations, is to prosecute one or two of the people at the top. I know that I've um I've I've sort of said this before but and it goes back to the fact that I'm I guess a bit of a idealist but it always saddens me that we need to have those court cases those repercussions those high fines those penalties even those prosecutions before organizations realize that data protection is not an optional nice to have in fact, data protection is a fundamental human right that every organisation should respect and build into everything that it does. It's wanting people to want to do the right thing and it's wanting organisations that are there to look after us and that are you know, key, key cornerstones of our democracy and our everyday lives. You want them to want to do the right thing and I think that's, that's the issue. But I also think that people have... Um, as individuals become very separated from the fact that they're data subjects and that they have rights. And, um, you know, with the right to process someone's information comes a huge amount of responsibility, um, including the people who are processing that data because they've forgotten that they're data subjects too. So applying the same level of respect and care that they would want their personal information to be handled with is what they should exercise towards um, other people. Um, that they have been entrusted to to manage. Yeah, it's, I, I find it's quite frustrating that, uh, like you were saying, Mike, and the, the, the fact that these big penalties and things like that need to be levied against these organisations, but it's always after the fact. It's always reactive. It's never, right, let's do the right things with this project, you know, whatever it might be. It's, it's a new implementation of some, uh, you know, like automatic facial recognition, that kind of stuff. Um, it's always after the fact and they always have to be told afterwards that, that, that they've done the wrong thing. Um, and there's probably, I mean, we'd be here all day, but there's probably an ethical argument to be had about um, whether it's more ethical to try and achieve um, certain purposes, whether it's, you know, the protection of the public or uh, prevention of crime, that kind of thing. Um, you know, if we're using certain data or processing certain data to achieve those goals, uh, I mean, is it more ethical to achieve the goal or is it more ethical to look after the data that's involved and, and that kind of thing? That's, mm. It's a much longer... At what point do the ends justify the it's, means? Yeah. What, where's the, where does the line fall? I think that comes back to what I was saying as well, Ellie, that you can have the argument over who is the data owner, but there's no doubt at all in my mind that the coalition forces had a significant responsibility um, to look after this data and to make sure that the data was not left compromised and certainly wasn't allowed to fall into the hands of a rogue state like the Taliban.
Exactly right, Mike. It's shocking. And um, it's yet another reason why um, the coalition and those of us in the West should hang our heads in shame. So I think that, you know, certainly for my mind, this has raised some very interesting uh, ethical and moral questions that I think will probably raise a lot of discussion and hopefully, which we will see discussed in Parliament um, in months to come. For those of you who are listening to this podcast, we'd really value your thoughts. What do you think about what's going on out there in terms of the story about how data has been left behind and the implication on those families and those future individuals, uh, sorry, those individuals who had helped the coalition in the past? Get in touch and let us know. Certainly for my mind, we've talked about this a lot, Ellie. Because you can, does it mean you should? Exactly. It's something that we've um, discussed in a variety of different um, security and data protection and privacy arenas. And it frequently seems to come back to that. And um, it's just horrible seeing it happen in such a huge scale in such an absolutely tragic and awful circumstance. I think there's a high likelihood that we're going to be seeing some of the scenes that we have previously witnessed in Rwanda and Bosnia and Kosovo. And, well, you know, you can list them out over the decades, can't you? It's a tragic human um, issue that's going on over there. And it's easy to talk about the data in an academic purpose, but certainly my emotional state in reading these stories is we have absolutely failed in our moral and ethical obligation to look after the individual's data and we've put their lives at risk. Uh, completely right. Um, and the one thing that'll stop the West waking up to it is the fact that I don't think any uh, sane, sensible uh, television reporter is going to be there with the uh, camera crews recording what the, the Taliban are going to do. So uh, unfortunately, I think uh, we, we will have to rely on what's coming out from individuals reporting um, uh, under very dangerous circumstances from, from on the ground um, back out to their families who've, who've escaped. Um, but um, I suspect we're in to see uh, some really, really, really shocking activities. I think it's going to be interesting to see um, one of the things that occurred to me about individuals trying to get their stories out and trying to report on what's happening um, in Afghanistan is going to be the use of um, the dark web because it's a it's a place that uh, is has has been and continues to be used by people who are living under repressive re repressive regimes um and I'm I'll be interested to have a conversation about that as well at some point in the future if anyone's up for it oh, I think if we could if we start to get into the dark web then life gets life gets very interesting indeed then um, it does get interesting but you know sometimes it's nice to talk about um some of the some of the good stuff that can come out of dark web as well exactly some final thoughts from Mike. So I've said many a time in my career that the misuse of and the inappropriate disclosure of personal information has the potential to cause significant harm and distress to individuals and groups of individuals. But certainly if these stories are to be born to be true, this is the first case that I've seen of misuse of information on a scale where it has the potential to put the population at risk. As communities, 
as societies, we really need to wake up to the fact that personal information is the property of the individual and data protection is a fundamental human right. And without that respect, then we're going to continue to see poor, poor management of data, which is going to continue to put people's lives at risks, both in theatres of conflict, but also in the wider communities in which we all live. So there we have it. Those are our thoughts. Get in touch and let us know your thoughts. This has been the Advent IM podcast. It just leaves for me to thank my guests, um, Philip Ingram. Thank you, Mike. Liam Walker. Thanks, Mike. And the omnipresent Ellie Hurst. Thanks, Mike. Thank you very much. And we'll be catching up with you again in a future podcast coming to an earpiece near you. Goodbye. <laughs>